I invite you to turn in your Bibles again to the Gospel of Matthew. We're making our way slowly, I hope not ponderously, through this book. Um, I look back and notice I've preached 95 sermons in this series. I hope you're not getting <laughs> tired of it. I am certainly not getting tired of it. This has just uh, been a wonderful experience studying uh, this uh, gospel. So we're in uh, chapter 16 of Matthew. I'll be reading verses 13 through 20. Uh, we'll just be uh, considering actually the first part of this passage. Uh, I think it uh, has more than enough for at least a couple of sermons, so we we'll, won't be discussing or considering all of this text, but I want to read it uh, all together as a, as a unit. Let's hear then uh, God's word to us this day. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Well, as our text opens, uh, Jesus has walked with his disciples about 25 miles north from the Sea of Galilee to the vicinity of Caesarea Philippi. Uh, this region was governed at that time by Herod's son, Philip, uh, possibly the, the better of, or the best of the three sons of Herod that split his territory after his death. Uh, Philip rebuilt a city named Panaeus, uh, which was named after the Greek god Pan. Uh, there was an outdoor sanctuary there, and, and uh, uh Niches cut into the rock of a, a cave that was covered, considered sacred, said to uh, be the place, the entrance to the, the uh, land of the dead. Uh, he rebuilt that city. The worship there continued, the idolatry, and he named uh, the city, renamed it in honor of himself, uh, Caesarea Philippi and the Caesar. So sort of honoring Caesar and himself as well. Uh, by saying Caesarea Philippi, this also distinguished it from a Caesarea that's on the coast of uh, the Mediterranean. So Jesus has come then into an area that is predominantly non-Jewish. And the, the significance of that, uh, and Jesus' purpose in doing this undoubtedly, is because that takes he and his disciples away from the clamor of the crowds, uh, the carping of the critics against him, the Pharisees, Sadducees, others, they're, they're, they're able to get some space, in other words, from all that uh, hubbub and hecticness. Uh, he has a very, very significant lesson to teach these disciples, and he wants their undivided attention. Uh, he knows that uh, human beings are very distractible. <laughs> Uh, I'm certainly distractible. I imagine you're distractible. He wants to get these disciples off by himself so that uh, Matthew and Simon and all the rest can, can put their attention on him. And, and can I just digress for a moment and ask you, do you make time for Jesus? Uh, do, do you make time to follow him out of the clamor of your life, away from the busyness. Uh, Jesus purposely 
does this for the benefit of his disciples. He gives you opportunities to draw away from all the distractions all around you and listen to him. The essence of, a meaning of uh, the meaning of uh, the word disciple is student. And you as students of Jesus need to give some time to listen to your teacher. You will definitely profit from it. Well, Matthew and Simon and the others don't know it, and they make this journey northward, but they are about to be involved in a crucial turning point, the crucial turning point, I think we could say, in Jesus' ministry. Things are not going to be the same after these days that they spend in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Jesus wants them to be ready for a drastic change in his ministry, things that they have no idea are coming their way. And so, dramatically, in the, in the overall setup of the book of Matthew, this is right at the center. And I think it's pulling us in, pulling us into the experience of the disciples here to, to grab some important truths, some life-changing truths. Well, Matthew shows us the master teacher, the teacher without equal, as Jesus begins his dialogue with the disciples with questions. He often uses questions, doesn't he? We saw in the last text that we looked at, he used a series of rhetorical questions to draw his students, his disciples, to a truth. And and that's such an excellent teaching technique. He's, He's going to use it here. Uh, look, for the, look for the questions in Scripture, by the way. Now, this text will make it easy for us because Jesus is going to ask questions and we can put ourselves in the disciples' place and hear those questions. But, but even texts where there are not any overt questions like this, I, I hope you come to him with, with the attitude that says, okay, what is this text going to challenge me about? What questions is this going to ask me? Okay, it's, that's going to help you get from just hearing the text with your head to hearing it with your heart and your mind. Uh, So Jesus, as I said, makes it easy for us in this text. He asks questions of the disciples that we can uh, follow along with the disciples and thinking about who do people say that I the son of man am he says now now before you think about how the disciples answer that question and how you might answer that question I want you to notice what can be implied by this Jesus has no doubt about who he is <laughs> he's not trying to find himself okay, he, he never had to do that He knows perfectly well who he is. He's certain of his identity. In fact, he's really answered it here right right in the text, hasn't he? By calling himself the Son of Man. He knows who he is. Uh, This is his favorite title for himself, the Son of Man. Now, liberal theologians often seize upon this, and they say, well, this proves that Jesus... He just views himself as another human being because, of course, the Hebrew language uses this technique, uses this expression, son of, to name, uh, to identify membership in a group. So they say, well, you know, look at the book of Ezekiel, for instance. Uh, Ninety-three times God addresses Ezekiel as a son of man. He over and over says, son of man, and then says something to Ezekiel. And, And so they liberal theologians say, well, he's just saying he's another human being. Now, there there are a lot of ways to refute that silly idea, but let me just mention a couple. One is that if you look at our text here, you notice that Jesus uses the definite article with his name or title. He says, the son of man, not a son of man. If he wanted to say, I'm a human being, he would not have put the article on it. 
Yeah, I mean, if we, further, if we, if we take Son of Man here as a synonym for human being, that the question really, really sounds strange. Who do people say that the human being is? And what sense would that make? Or even if we take off the article, who do people say that a human being is? It, it, it's grammatically, it, if you go through the Gospels and you substitute human being for Jesus' use of this phrase, you'll find many places where grammatically it just doesn't make sense and it always is confusing in meaning. But second and more importantly, uh, Jesus uses this name in many places where it's impossible to read it as referring to a human being. Let me just mention a few of them that we've seen in Matthew. Back in chapter 9 of Matthew, Jesus said that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Remember, he does that just before he, he heals a paralytic. Now, Jesus would have been teaching lies to say, be saying in that context that any human being can forgive any sin. That, that is just patently foolish. In Matthew chapter 9, uh, 12, in verse 40, Jesus says, The Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, that only makes sense if it's God speaking it, because a human being is not able to predict his own death and his resurrection. It just is not going to happen. Uh, or Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus says, The Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, it would be not only ludicrous, it would be blasphemous if Jesus is saying just any human being is going to be able to command the heavenly angels and judge all of creation. But let me, let me uh, mention one more text that we haven't come to in Matthew that just by itself would be enough, enough to refute this idea that he's only saying is a human being. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is on trial. It's no legal trial, but he's still on trial for the high priest. And he refuses to defend himself. And the high priest, in exasperation, places him under oath. And in submission to the authority of the high priest, he, he answers the high priest then. The high priest puts him under oath, asking him, are you the anointed one? Are you the Messiah? We're going to look at that term in, in just a couple of minutes. And here's Jesus' reply to him. You have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That makes no sense if he's asserting his humanity there because he's drawing an image right out of the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 6, where Daniel sees a vision, heavenly vision, and he sees one like a Son of Man who comes and receives from the ancient of days power and authority, a kingdom that is everlasting, power rule that is all extensive. Jesus is clearly saying, in this exchange with the high priest, I am that divine personage that Daniel prophesied. And the high priest was perfectly right when he said that for a human being to say that was blasphemy. Of course, we know that it was not blasphemy because Jesus was speaking the truth. So Jesus is perfectly aware of who he is. So he's asking what other people think for a reason. Well, the disciples answer, they, they leave out, you probably noticed, they, they leave out the kind of things that the Pharisees and Sadducees were saying, that he was a charlatan, uh, he was a hoax, uh, even that he was an agent of the devil. They leave out those and they just mention the positive things. Uh, we've referred to some of these uh, even in the study of Matthew so far. Basically, they all boil down to, we see Jesus as some kind of a prophet, he, he, he's obviously a godly person, he, he's a holy man, 
uh, he, he's, he's some kind of a prophet. They, they're mixed up about exactly what that means. Is he Elijah uh, come down from heaven? You remember Elijah was taken up into heaven bodily. He didn't die a natural death. Maybe, maybe he's come back as Elijah, they're thinking. Maybe John the Baptist has been resurrected from the dead. John the Baptist was such a powerful po- uh, prophet. Uh, maybe it's Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Uh, he, he's, he's definitely ranking high in our estimation. That's what the people are saying. Actually, the, the answers of the crowds reflect the thoughts of many today, don't they? Most people today, if they give any thought to Jesus at all, as a historical figure, they'd concede that he's something like a prophet. Many people who, uh, who claim to be Christians, claim even to be evangelical Christians, uh, would say that Jesus is a special prophet, he has a special connection with God. But both the crowds in Jesus' day and people today who think that Jesus is just a human prophet are really not thinking logically. Their, their brains are not working. It would be impossible for us to consider as a godly person someone who says he's God. It would be, it would be totally illogical uh, to, to look at someone who is claiming the powers of God and saying, well, this is a good person. He, he's violating the sanctity of God's name by pretending to be God. If you don't believe he's God, then, then Jesus is committing blasphemy every day of his life in his public ministry. So people are just, just not being consistent. They're, they're not thinking. Uh, no prophet in his right mind is going to say something like, I and the Father are one. Or before Abraham was, I am and certainly no prophet in his right mind is going to say, he who believes in me will never die. Okay, so, so we can throw out all the crowd's opinions here, and Jesus, in effect, does. Notice he doesn't comment on these opinions at all. They're not, they're not worth his time. And in fact, it seems that he just asked that question really as a segue to where he's really going, which is to address that question to the disciples. He's just got their minds going by asking them what the crowds think. Now he gets to his main point. Here's the first lesson. He's introducing the first lesson that he has for them by asking them a question. Who do you say that I am? And he uses the the plural second person pronoun here. if we were down south, we'd say, you all. <laughs> and in fact, not only does he use the second person plural with the verb, he adds an extra second person plural pronoun, you. So literally he's saying, but you all, who do you all think that I am? Now, why does Jesus ask this question? Because it's the most important question they'll ever answer in life. And it's the most important question that you will ever answer in your lifetime. Who do you all think Jesus is? This is the very core of what it means to be a Christian. And your answer to this question will reveal whether you'll be received into heaven or cast into hell. It's that significant. No wonder, no wonder Jesus has pulled the disciples aside and wants their total attention to this important question, this crucial question. Well, it's characteristic of Simon Peter to be the spokesman for the disciples as a group. Uh, For instance, back in chapter 15, we read him speaking for the disciples. They had 
heard Jesus say something about moral defilement that they didn't understand, and so they sort of prod Peter, or maybe he steps up on his own, and he says, explain the parable to us. He's often the one that uh, acts as a spokesperson for the disciples. This probably reflects in part his personality. He's someone who is quick to speak and quick to act. And as, as you know, if you're that kind of person, that can get you into trouble, or sometimes that can really work well for you. <laughs> for instance, in, in the narrative back in chapter 14, remember, we said the disciples see Jesus walking to them on the Sea of Galilee, walking on the water, and it's Peter who jumps at the chance and says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come and, and walk on the water too. Uh, so sometimes... You know, it's something that seems good like that. Of course, a couple of minutes later, his, uh, his faith is getting a little shaky, and he's sinking, and he has to call out for help from, from Jesus. Uh, we're going to see in the transfiguration in the next chapter in Matthew, Peter's going to blurt something out. He's going to be so taken with what's going on, he's just going to blurt out what seems to be the first thing that comes in, into his mind, and and the voice of God is going to speak and basically say, be quiet, Peter, okay? <laughs> you don't need to be talking right now. Listen to Jesus. Stop running off at the mouth. Um, his quickness is going to get him in trouble, of course, when he, when he says, everybody else may fall away from you, but I won't. I'll be with you to the end. And then he's going to blurt out an oath shortly after that, saying he doesn't know Jesus. I say all that because I think we need to understand that as Simon Peter gives this answer in our text, this answer that we read in verse 16, he, he is speaking for himself, it is true, but he is speaking also for the rest of the disciples. And I think we'll see that in a sense he is speaking for any believer in Christ. What he's saying the, in verse 16, the disciples have been coming to for some time. It seems to have been a gradual process for them. Some of them noticed something really unique about Jesus right away, the first thing. Simon's own brother, we're told in the first chapter of John, when he uh, heard John the baptizer point Jesus out, First thing Andrew did was to run and find his brother Simon, and he says to him, we have found the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. So from even before Peter had met Jesus, he had heard that title used of him. Gospel of John tells us that after calling Andrew and Peter, Jesus called two more men, Philip and Nathaniel, and Peter probably heard Nathaniel's response to Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel, both messianic titles, of course. And, and just, just in chapter 14 that we looked at not long ago, you remember after that episode of Jesus walking on the water that I referred to a couple of minutes ago, we read there, those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. One of the most explicit confessions comes, I think, from a woman, from Martha. She says this, after her brothers died and before Jesus has raised him, she says, I believe you are the Christ, the anointed one, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So these and other texts make it clear that in answering Jesus' question, Simon Peter is expressing the belief of the disciples as a whole, with the exception of false disciples like Judas. So does Simon Peter speak for you? Is he voicing your confession? As he says, you are the anointed one, the son of God the living one. Well, you need to 
answer this question with understanding in order for your profession of faith to be true. So what does it mean to know Jesus as the anointed one, the son of God, the living one? Well, we can notice that the title Christ or anointed one, sometimes translated Messiah, is applied to Jesus more than any other title. We saw it right at the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. The book of the genealogy of Jesus, the anointed one, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And later on in Matthew chapter 1, having given the long genealogy, Matthew says, in effect, here is the, here is the point of all this. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. He's saying all of Israel's history is leading up to this one who I'm identifying as the anointed one. So we could say that really all of the Hebrew scriptures leading up to this identification of Jesus by the name or title of the Anointed One. So let me ask uh, some one of you to, to help point this out. Okay? Bring to your mind the practice of anointing with oil in the Old Testament. Someone give us the answer to this question. We read in the history of Israel of people being anointed with oil for what special roles or callings? Speak up there, Violet. <laughs> Prophets are anointed, priests are anointed, kings are anointed. Prophets were anointed as a sign of their calling before God to speak the word of God. Right? Kings were anointed as a sign of their callings to rule under the kingship of God, who is the true king of his people. And priests were anointed as signs of their calling to serve as mediators between God and his people in worship. So all of these offices were, in a sense, representative of God to his people. So when the apostles write over and over again, Jesus, the anointed one, Jesus, the Christ. Remember, Christ isn't his last name. It's the title. Jesus, the anointed one, the anointed one, Jesus. Every time they, they do that, every time they read that, you're to remember he's the fulfillment of all those roles, all three of those roles. He, he, is, he is the eternal prophet, priest, and king. So apply that to this matter of confession. To confess that Jesus is the anointed one then is for you to say that you believe that he is the perfect prophet of God. His words are the very words of God. He lived in complete obedience to God's word. In fact, he is God's word in human form. That's what you mean if you truly say that Jesus is the anointed one. To confess Jesus to be the anointed one means that you believe he is the unparalleled priest of God. He is the only mediator between God and the human race. He is the only one who offered the perfect sacrifice for sin that reconciled God with sinners. He and he alone, with the addition of nothing done by anyone else, turns away the wrath of God from sinners through his atoning death. In Jesus, the anointed one who is priest, sinners are justified before God and are being sanctified to serve him. Further, to confess Jesus to be the anointed one's means that you believe he is the king of kings and lord of lords, it means that you submit to him in every area of your life. But of course... Peter adds to that, doesn't he? 
So to this confession of Jesus as the anointed one, it is fitting to add that he is the son of God, the living one. The expression the living one comes at the end of the sentence in Greek there, emphasizing the difference between God and every other object of worship. Don't miss that. Everything and everyone that people worship besides the true God does not possess eternal life. All false gods are dead and dying. Confession of faith in Jesus as the Son of God, the living one, means that you've turned from every other god and consider them dead to you and yourself as dead to them. What does that mean? That means your possessions no longer rule you because you don't put your trust in having a home and money in the bank. You know that the living God is your eternal home and your lasting wealth. It means you are no longer subject to the control of the culture around you that seeks to press you into its mold, as Paul says. By the transformation of your thinking in the anointed one Jesus, you break out of that mold to be made from the inside out in the beautiful image of your creator and Lord. To know the living God is to fear him alone, which frees you from every earthly fear to live in freedom as his child, knowing yourself to be protected from all his and your enemies. To confess Jesus as the Son of God means that you know him as God, one with the Father and the Spirit, as we sang in our opening hymn. It is to know that the Holy Spirit has caused you to be born again and united with him by faith, and that you are therefore one with God and with all those whom he has redeemed. You are no longer alone in your sin, but are one of an innumerable army of those who have been made in Christ children of the living God. That's what it means, or at least the beginning of what it means to confess that Jesus is the anointed one, the Son of God, the living one. If that is your confession, then, Jesus says some wonderful things about that in the next verse. So let's go to verse 17. In verse 17, we have Jesus' declaration of the significance and the source of Simon Peter's wonderful confession. And again, it's clear that this declaration applies as well, not only to the disciples as a whole, but to you, provided that his words express what you know by faith. Doesn't that begin wonderfully, Jesus' words in verse 17, blessed. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Now, the word Barjona here, by the way, is not a translation. It's a transliteration from the Greek. In other words, it's just the Greek word spelled out in English letters. If we were to translate it, the prefix bar translates as son of, and the Greek there is probably a derivative, a variation on the Aramaic version of the name John. So, since people don't have a last name, you're identified by your father, by perhaps your hometown. So Jesus is, by using Simon's full name here, making this very personal. Okay, he's making this very personal. He's using his full name for emphasis. It's, it's like when your parents call you by your full name. Okay. They're emphasizing something right there. Probably getting ready to tell you something you don't want to hear. Well, in this case, Jesus uses Simon's full name, but it's a good thing. And in fact, you've noticed uh, in, in this text that I use that the blessed comes first. He doesn't say, you, Simon, son of John, are blessed. He puts the blessed first in the sentence to, to underscore it. Jesus is saying that the fact that Simon knows that he, Jesus, is the anointed one, the Son of God, the living one, 
that means that Simon is in a state of blessedness. So, if you share this confession, that means that you are in a state of blessedness. To be blessed is to have your lawlessness forgiven, your sins covered, to not have your sin counted against you as you so richly deserve. Paul puts it like this in Romans chapter 4. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against, the Lord, against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That is indeed a blessed state, isn't it? To be blessed is to be, no longer be dead in sin, a slave to this world and to the devil, and to be no longer the objects of God's wrath because of your sin. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. To be blessed, then, is to be alive through union with the anointed one, to be loved by God, to be the recipients of the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness towards you. To be blessed is to be saved by grace through faith as a gift of God. In fact, Paul goes on to say that to be blessed is to be crafted by God. He says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. To be blessed is to be set free from slavery to sin and to be the slaves of God, which brings you to holiness and eternal life. Romans 6, 22, now you have been set free from sin. Now become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. To be blessed is to be rescued from alienation from God, to belong to him as one of his covenant people, to be no longer an orphan but to belong to the family of God. Here's Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in the anointed one, Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of the anointed one, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the anointed one, Jesus himself, being the cornerstone, in whom all the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
To be blessed means to experience all the benefits of belonging to the kingdom of God, even in the midst of reviling and persecution. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. To be blessed is to know joy beyond anything that this world can offer. Again, reading from 1 Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And he says this means we have joy now and forever. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see it, now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of faith, the salvation of your souls. Jude puts it this way, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. We can multiply examples from Scripture showing the blessing that is yours when you confess Jesus as the anointed one, the Son of God, the living one. But let's quickly, before we close, think about how you got into that state of blessedness. How did Simon arrive in this state of blessedness? How does any person arrive in this incredible state of blessedness? Well, Jesus says there in verse 17. First, he answered that question negatively. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Now, this expression, flesh and blood, of course, is metaphorical. What he's saying is anything human. Anything having to do with you as an earthly being. You did not get this knowledge in and of yourself. Now, you, you've learned a lot. The scientists tell us from the moment of conception, you've learned and grown. And you can say there's a lot you know. You know things about the world around you. You know things about yourself. You have concrete knowledge about physical realities. And you have abstract knowledge about concepts like mathematics and philosophy. All of your knowing, however, cannot bring you to know God. No one has ever reasoned himself or herself into a personal knowledge of God. Simon, nor any of the apostles, figured out Jesus on their own, and you can't either. The knowledge that Jesus speaks of is not gained through human intellect or intuition. It's not gained by human will and determination. That's why many people of great intellect 
Extreme determination and incredible intuition never come to know what Simon, this ordinary Jewish fisherman, knew. And what you know if you've been brought to faith in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul can say this to the church in Corinth. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Is he just insulting them? Is he tearing them down? No, because he wants their, their assurance of salvation not to rest in themselves. This is why the Apostle John wrote that a personal knowledge of God does not come, John 1.13, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Now again, why does Jesus emphasize this negative aspect? It's because it is to warn you, warn the disciples of course, but to warn you not to depend on anything in yourself for your knowledge that you belong to Christ. If you place your confidence in your own thinking or feeling or efforts of will, then your confidence is going to fail you right when you need it the most. There's an infinitely more reliable basis for your faith. And so let's look at those positive terms in closing. What has revealed this to Simon? My Father, Jesus says, who is in heaven. My Father, who is in heaven. The only way you know who I am, Simon, is because my Father has opened your mind and heart to know. That's how you know. Now, now, logic would tell us this, actually. If there is a God, he is beyond and above us, and it is not reasonable to think that anything a human being could do could somehow coerce God into revealing himself, could somehow figure out who God is on their own. So logic tells us if the supreme being of the universe is going to be known by us, he's going to have to reveal himself to us. That's the only way. He's not obligated in any way to human beings. And in fact... Human sin has so offended God in his holiness that his justice would demand that he deprive the human race of any knowledge of himself. Reason, therefore, would conclude that not only can a human being not attain knowledge of God on their own, but human beings deserve to be shut off from knowing him for eternity. God's unmerited love, however moved him to do what reason and human effort cannot. And he purposed to make himself known to a people who would make, he would make his own. Jesus has already told the disciples that on a number of occasions. Back in Matthew chapter 13, he said, To you, meaning his students, his disciples here, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say, you guys are so bright. I mean, you're so intelligent. You're so at the top of your class that you've been able to figure this out. No, he says, it's a gift. It's been given to you. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. You couldn't see the truth. You couldn't hear the truth before, but my Father has revealed it to you. In fact, Jesus thanked God for choosing to reveal himself in this way to unlikely sinners. Matthew chapter 11. I thank you, Father, Jesus says in prayer, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. That's you, if you believe in him. You're those little children that God has revealed himself to. And that means then that the assurance of your salvation rests on what he has done and not what you've done. He came to his own, John says in chapter 1, 
And his own people did not receive him, okay? It wasn't revealed to them. They, they could not understand him. But to all who did receive them, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Well, how did that happen? How did they receive him? It's because they were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They had a heavenly birth. Jesus tells this to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Forget getting into it, you can't even see it. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. They're totally incompatible. You cannot have a spiritual birth through the effort of the flesh. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's a spiritual birth affected by the Spirit of God. Later on in John, John chapter 15, Jesus says to the disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. John chapter 6, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Ephesians chapter 2, again, you are dead in trespasses and sins. Remember that passage. But God, because he is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. 1 Peter, again, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You are by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Your confidence of salvation rests on what God has done for you and in you. Oh, we need to close, but what does that look like? What does a life of confession look like? How do you live out this faith that you've confessed? Let me give you just one passage from 1 John. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the anointed one has been born of God. Okay, we were just talking about that. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God. Here it is when we love God and obey his commandments. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's pray together. Only Father, we're so grateful that you have called the people to yourself and made them overcomers. We often feel beaten down, anything but an overcomer. We know our weakness, we know our own proclivity to sin. And as we confess that, Lord, we also confess that you have revealed yourself to us as the anointed one, the Son of God, the living one, and that makes all the difference. Enable us, Lord, to live in that confidence and that faith, loving you through obeying your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.